This is Walking Your Talk, a personal development podcast about leadership, authenticity, and courage. I'm Carolyn Taylor, and I've spent my life working with leaders in organizations on how to change their culture. But this is much more personal. If you want to be known as someone who walks your talk at work and beyond, then this podcast is for you. Hello. Today I have a special extended episode for you, and my guest is a fellow author and someone I feel is equally passionate as I am about culture. Siobhan McHale is the Executive General Manager of People, Culture and Change at the Dulux Group in Australia and is the author of an excellent book called The Insider's Guide to Culture Change. I wanted you all to meet her because she has some fascinating views on roles and which I believe provide a lens through which to see culture and our relationships with others, which allows people to adjust and change how they approach getting things done. So in this extended episode, she and I are going to talk about accountability from our different perspectives and provide you, I hope, with a lot of food for thought. So Siobhan, welcome. I'm so pleased that you've been able to come to the podcast and that we're going to have this conversation together. Same. I'm really looking forward to it, Carolyn. Mm. So, and I think what's fascinated about talking to you is that, you know, we've known each other for, well, a long time. I mean, when I was living in Australia, yes. you and, and we've admired our work or each other's work, I should say, Absolutely. for yes. goodness. I'm thinking it could be 20 years. I won't try and date us both, but it's going back quite a long way. <laughs> Yeah, and your book was pivotal in my life and in my work. Walking the talk was my bible uh, in my uh, in my work on culture change. So you're definitely somebody I looked up to in the culture change field, and still do. Interestingly, it was you and and you know you when you were working at ANZ, where you actually led a project which was really one of the first in Australia to have a very very serious effort at changing culture. And that was extraordinary for me to watch because there's not many organizations even today who invest that heavily in culture. And certainly back then it was uh, unusual. So you were immediately then, in my view, someone on the inside. And that was, I think, why I loved the title of your book, uh, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change. And so tell us a little bit about how, how your book happened and why you wrote it and it, it launched i think just just at the pandemic or after the pandemic it's been been out about a year hasn't it yes. yeah yes yes it has and it really um stems from my career firstly as as a consultant for a decade carolyn where i flew in and out of thousands of workplaces across four continents advising leaders how to create more constructive and productive cultures and then i decided i wanted was something missing for me. I actually wanted to roll up my sleeves and do culture change. And I made the change to become the executive in charge of culture and change in a series of multinational firms. And really the book has stemmed from that range of experiences and in particular that insider lens. How do you actually 
do culture change when you're uh, within an organisation, whether it be within HR or as a manager trying to create a better, more constructive and more productive culture. So, yeah, it's that insider's lens and it, it brings and it examines a range of case studies that, that uh, look at the, the four steps, the four ingredients for successful culture change. Mm. And I should immediately declare to the listeners here, many of whom I think know me quite well, that Siobhan's work is, in my view, the most original new thinking on culture that I've seen for years. So I highly recommend that you get a hold of her book and see her thinking, which I think takes the parts of it for me, which go beyond anything I'd thought of before. And, and I was so grateful to be able to see that. So that that's in the like, that's who Siobhan is. And, and of course, all of you know me and yeah, so so my my second book of, of any substance accountability at work, which double clicked on one one type of culture, one element of culture that people I know many people who are trying to implement, which was how do you actually get people to make and keep promises and deliver what they say they will do, and so that's been my contribution to the conversation recently, and I think you just had a look at it recently, didn't you? Yes, and I absolutely loved the model and we've talked about it at some length, Carolyn. It's very breakthrough thinking on how to hold um, a culture to account uh, with a, a wonderful model. So I think it's, it's quite breakthrough in its thinking and very valuable and helpful for people. Oh, thank you. It was interesting writing it because it's a, maybe 90, 100 pages how-to and I, my last one was kind of like a tome. And it's been a very interesting experience, really going deep on one topic and getting very precise. It was a good discipline for me actually to do that. So anyway, that's probably enough on us and, and how we are here and why we're here and how we got to know each other. Uh, I wanted all of you who are listening to, to understand who Siobhan is and why I wanted to bring her here in this capacity. What I'd like to do now uh, is introduce three topics which both Siobhan and I find that organizations are facing into and then ask both of us really to consider what would be our thoughts on how you improve those various situations that one finds at work. How does one advise help either from the inside or the outside? And the three topics I wanted to focus on were uh, the topic of having or a leader feeling anxious that their team or their organization is not really performing to the level we would like it to, uh, either that they are you know, definitely not hitting targets or that they could be stretching more. So that was the first one. The second one was going to be about uh, you know, how we encourage lateral collaboration across the business. And the third one about bureaucracy and complexity and how do you take some of that out of a culture. All things, by the way, which I've actually encountered even just this week with different organizations. So I know they're very live. So let's go back to the first one. And when you, I'm sure in, in your business, there would be at the very least teams where the leader is feeling, you know, I just can't quite get my people to deliver. I can't, I can't feel completely confident that they're going to deliver what I would hope. Um, what would be your analysis, response, advice when someone says that to you? Mm. Well, I had an example from an infrastructure company where I worked at uh, some years ago where 
the contracts were actually losing money and uh, the manager was very concerned about over 50% of his contracts running in the red. And one of the things that we did was, uh, and you know I'm a big advocate of this, was we started to examine role and what was the big pattern running the business. And what we discovered um, in doing a diagnostic was that the managers within the infrastructure company who were building bridges and roads and big infrastructure projects, they had stepped into the role of the nice guys. So the big pattern that was running the organisation was that we value relationships with each other more than we value performance. So we had managers in the role of nice guys and we had employees in the role of underachievers. And that pattern was the agreement between the two parts. It was the agreement between the managers and the employees that we value being liked above valuing performance. And once the manager saw that pattern, he could begin to see that he was actually in the same role and he could see that he could step into a different role of performance leader and start to break that pattern. So my advice based on that story is really start to step back from the situation and really see what are the roles within the culture and what are the patterns between the parts, Carolyn, if that makes sense to you. It and does. I'd love to hear your experiences. Well, I had one follow-up question before I offer my one with there, which was that how difficult do you find it for a manager to see that that's the role they're playing? And, and is, it, is it a role or is it a, a sort of life pattern? Yes, I think those are great questions. Firstly, it's often quite difficult to see it. And this is where an external advisor or an external consultant can be incredibly valuable because when you're in the culture, it's very easy to get caught by these patterns and become blind to them. So the external advisor is incredibly important in helping that. And then... With role, you ask a great question because role can be something that you take up in different situations over the course of your life. So it could have been shaped early on in your life. You could be in role of victim, a role of rescuer, a role of um, community-minded one. So these roles can persist in multiple time periods and in multiple situations. But essentially, my philosophy is that role shapes behaviour in a way that is just as powerful as personality. But we often don't look at the world through the lens of role and we don't declare or see what role we're in. I think that was one of, when I said before, there were, there were things in your book that were you know, really enlightening for me. And that was one of them because there's something about the word role which feels in some way in my mind easier to change. So when you say to me, I want you to play a new role, it it feels easier than, you know, I want you to change. Yes. Which is maybe language that one might more usually hear. So I'm interested to hear how you're saying that, in fact, leaders seem able, more able to take that shift. I think it's really an interesting point because we can take up multiple roles even on a daily basis within our lives. We can take up role of parent and we can take up role of partner or spouse. 
Uh, we can take up role of colleague. We can take up role of boss. We can take up role of subordinate. Um, and in each of these roles, we don't need a training manual. We just know that we behave differently in role of spouse than we do in role of boss, hopefully, or in role of parent. And these are role maps or mental maps that we have about our role can shape our behavior. So you can shape behavior by instincts, by personality or by role, but we often go to personality because that's what we've been taught when in fact you can reframe a role of a person or of a team or even a department or an organization and see faster shifts with much less noise. So let me tell you about how I would respond to that situation. And and in doing so, I'd like to actually share a story, which was really the moment that triggered me into, okay, I have to write this book on accountability. Because what I I found is I was working with a team. They were based in Latin America. They were part of a global organization and they had continually underperformed for, I think it was five years in a row. So every time they would set a target or have a forecast and then miss the forecast and then miss the forecast and miss the forecast. And so they'd got pretty down, obviously, because their you know scorecard was getting continually lower. And a new leader had come in and he found quite a demoralized group and reached out and said, you know, what could we do about it? And so when I started talking in depth to them, what I realized was that and I think it does link to your conversation about role, they were absolutely overpromising. So they didn't, they, they didn't know how to have the difficult conversation up front about is this goal doable? And so they would tend to say yes too easily. And then because they wanted to look good, they then kind of didn't then have the conversation with each other afterwards, which said, hey, we said yes, but really we don't know how we're going to do this. So let's at least have some real conversations now about how we go about it. And so from that came the insight for me that there was a difference between a promise and an intention. And that one of the most powerful things a team can do is to recognize the difference. Not to say everything has to be a promise, because sometimes you get asked to do something and to be honest, you, it isn't really a promise, even if you feel like you have to say you can do it. But if you know yourself that it's an intention and you can have that conversation and start to have that conversation with your boss about, you know, I'll, we'll go for this, but we don't yet feel we've got everything covered to say this is a promise. Then what happened, well, there was a fascinating moment where we looked around the, I looked around the room and we asked everybody, you know, what percentage likelihood do you think there is that you're going to hit this number? And it was like maybe one or two months into the year. And you go around and they're going 50%, 60%, 55%, you know, around that number. And looking at everyone at the end and going, oh my God, this is an intention. This is not about us not caring or trying. This is about, yeah, we don't yet know the ways. And then we asked the follow-up question, which was, okay, what would it take? What, what would turn your intention into a promise? And then, of course, all out came all the risks, all the things they thought could go wrong. And that became their agenda for every team meeting for the next six months. How do we overcome these risks? How do we increase the likelihood that the intention will come a promise? So it was a practical insight, but they turned themselves around. It was a wonderful success story. They hit that year, and then the following year, they became the fastest growing region in the whole company. And yeah, it was a really lovely story. 
Mm, that's a wonderful story. And what emerges for me in it is that um, there's one part taking up the role of the over-promisers, but there's another part which is fueling the pattern of non-delivery. It doesn't exist in isolation, the role of over-promiser. It is fueled by some other part that is really uh, the non-feedback givers, um, the ones that are not holding others to account ones. So often people hone in, I think, Carolyn, just on the one part when you're the over-promisers, but they don't see the connection between the parts and the pattern that connects those two. Would you, would you agree with that? I would actually absolutely agree with that, yes. And in the model I, I put into to my book, and I, I know you've got some models in yours you'd like to talk about, later. the problem I put in was the, the role of the asker and the giver. And the giver is, is the person who is making the promise. And, and we all play asker and giver, right? We all, we all deliver things to people up the organization, across the organization, you know, as a supplier to our internal or external customers or whatever. And then the asker being the one who has a need or a want, which they want somebody else to deliver. So you can only be accountable, in my view, in relation to someone else who is holding you to account. And what will tend to happen is the askers will blame the givers. So they will say, well, the problem is they're not delivering. And the givers, whether they say it out loud or not, will then tend to say, oh, but it was an unrealistic goal in the first place. So I never really signed up for it. So, yeah, I agree with you that are two roles. And I think skills, you haven't talked so much about skills. I think there's a skill in both roles. You know, there's a skill of holding to account in different ways. And then there's a skill of giving a wise promise, you know, risk anticipation, overcoming problems, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think there's the, you know, the role of requester and responder, but even within those roles of requester and responder, there, there could be multiple roles. You could make a request in role of manager, which may be different to making a request in role of peer, uh, which may be, again, different to making a request in role of subordinate. So what role in the system would maybe even influence how you make that request? Would you agree? Yes, I would agree with that, actually. And then I'd even add uh, the role um, the requester or the asker as customer would be the other one. I mean, mm, it's a relationship multiple. between supplier yes. and customer is another one. Because I think, yeah, when we have, well, in some ways, actually, I don't know whether it's been your experience, but my experience has been that when you are a lateral colleague as opposed to a boss or subordinate, that that understanding that the roles you have to play are more about negotiating and listening and finding a solution perhaps is more obvious because you haven't got that authority dimension coming in. When you're the boss, what, what, what we've found is people will often either go into telling or, funnily enough, into avoiding. It's curious how many bosses I watch who don't actually make what I would call a clear request, particularly on smaller things. Like, for example, people say, oh, you know, there's no urgency in the organization. And then when you look at it, you go, well, you're not really holding people to account on dates, for example, or milestones or. Yes, totally. Or even when you make the request, what role do you want somebody who's receiving it to step into? So 
you know, I don't know if you've had the experience where you're in a meeting, but you just want somebody to listen. You don't necessarily want a solution, but you don't tell them, I just need you to be in role of listener. You start explaining the problem <clears throat> and they might step into role of coach, a role of solution finder, a role of advisor. And, you, you know, you haven't declared to them, actually, I just need you to listen to me. And often it happens in spousal relationships where, uh, you know, you have this sort of, you're not listening, but I thought, you know, I thought you wanted a solution. So, you know, I think the onus is on the person making the request to also think about what role do I want this person to receive this information in? You know, do I want them to co-problem solve with me? Do I want them to be the fixer? Do I want them to simply listen? Do I want them to... Um, you know, resolve it, uh, be in role of resolve. There's multiple roles that they could potentially receive that request in. Do you agree? I do. And and you could even go to, do I want you, or do I want you to, I mean, do I admit to myself that really I just want you to be in the role of someone who says, yes, sir, no, sir. And, you know, I mean, I'll just do it, right? Or do I actually want you to challenge and to express your doubts if you have them? I love that idea of actually expecting the role I'll call the asker, uh, expecting the ask or uh, suggesting that that actually is trying to shape the role that the other person is playing as you're doing it. Yes. So you even raise two other roles, you know, as you're, you know, in some organisations when you state something or request something, people step into role of yes people, yes person, okay, in this culture, what you're expected to do is nod your head and be the yes person. In McKinsey, they had a rule or a pattern where they said, we want everybody to step into role of critic. We want people to critically dissent. The obligation to dissent is what they called it, to try and avoid that yes pattern that can emerge. So you can request things and ask for people to step into role. You, you know, we want you, I just want you to nod your head and, you know, I've mostly done all the work. I just want you to sort of give it the final nod of approval or I want you to really tear it apart here, critically analyse. I want all of your rich feedback. And they're two very different roles. And often we don't ask each other, you know, in this meeting, what role would you like me to be in? What role is, is going to be of service to you? Yes. And all of what we've said so far, I'm realising, is is an activity or, com well, one, it's a conversation. So what we're suggesting here is that if you're not having some sort of quality conversation at that moment of a request and a commitment, then, then the likelihood that that will that the commitment will then be followed through on, in my view, definitely goes down. So that's kind of one insight for me out of this. And then the second one that I that I do I like to explore quite a lot further with people is how much time do you dedicate to, if you like, before the promise, versus the time you then spent on the way through, you know, for what I am then going to deliver you. And on the whole, the before the promise activity is very light on. I mean, you know, sometimes you've even got to really put your hand to your ear to even hear a clear request. Um, and at the least, it tends to be done to a whole team of people and there's there's a kind of a demand kicking in there. And so that, I think, is one of the reasons why the giver role perhaps doesn't 
really feel that they owned and stepped into that. So I like to ask, and I would ask, I think, in, in an organization like the one we were just talking about, how many times do you feel that somebody really wholeheartedly says to you, like, you can count on me? You can count on me to deliver this. I think mostly we 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 never really eyeball someone and say that that clearly because we don't feel that we had the quality conversation that would lead me to feel that. And you know, the ideal that one's looking for here is that the asker ultimately does get. I mean, askers will always tend to want a bit more, right? A bit, you know, a bit more volume, a bit less cost, a bit a bit faster. I mean, that's kind of natural in you know in this partner. That's a, in that partnership is natural. On the on the giver side, there's always this thing about, yeah, but will I be able to do it because I've got these other priorities and so on. I mean, the ideal situation you're really wanting to reach is the asker feels satisfied and the giver feels a hundred percent. You can count on me, and that I think is some combination of the conversations that we're starting to describe that need to take place. And I think what's emerging for me, I mean, most of these, it depends on the relatedness, I suppose, but if it's a manager subordinate, it's often there is obligation in both parts. It's not just obligation of one or the other. It's the the co-createdness of that subsystem, if you like, that is together going to deliver on the outcome with different parts playing different roles at different times. So, you know, one part might be meeting a deadline to a certain quality, but the other part, the manager part, might be coaching, critiquing, giving feedback, allowing it to be refined. So the two together, the togetherness of those two parts, I think, is where you're going to hit the outcome in in the best way at the you know in the best quality at the at the right time and often we we just think it lies with one rather than the the relatedness i i i think would you would you connect with that carolyn yes and and the and the clue the clue that lets me think that that's the case is the number of times i hear a leader complaining about i'm not getting what i want for my people and not even possibly realizing that in saying that they're actually pointing the finger at themselves as much as they're pointing at the other person, i.e. recognizing that if my people are not delivering, there's, there's a part of that where there's, there's something I'm missing in my role. Now, what is my role? What is my part in my people not delivering? And, and that, I think, is an, a, rich, a rich source of coaching or exploration. Mm. Absolutely, because all behaviours are connected and a shift in one part invariably will always have a shift in other parts. It has a ripple effect. So how can you change your role in order to, you know, because it's like a dance, as soon as one person changes the step, the dance will change. So how do you change one part to affect a change in another? Exactly, yes. We're absolutely agreed on that. It's the two way. It's the two parts that I'm. I hadn't actually appreciated till we've had this conversation. How we actually have we've taken a slightly different angle on how you get there, but we're absolutely aligned on that. There's always two parts, and so I might move us then to another challenge. I think it'd be worth exploring, which is the challenge where lateral. I mean, we've actually touched on it already, but where the two parts, in a sense, are 
one one division and another you know an, an enabling function and a sales facing business unit or you know the relationships that go across an organization and, and another challenge that that we will often see is that dynamic between the center saying oh but we want consistency you know we want we want the operational excellence that comes from having one way being done across the world or across the business or whatever it is because it's an optimum way of operating and then you've got the local part saying yes but we're unique and our customers are unique and we need things to be different so you've got these two polarities that organizations will tend to swing between one and the other and people swing between one and the other and and so that the much the same dynamic i think happens that we've just been talking about but i'd love to hear a little bit more from you on how you would interpret what you've talked about in those kind of situations Yes, and uh, this is one of the, the case studies I talk about in my book, the Nokia case study, where you had this relatedness between two parts. You had um, the software engineers and the hardware engineers, and they weren't really getting along. And Nokia, as we know, was the poster child for innovation in the 1990s. Its name was synonymous with, with mobile phones. And it uh, went into very uh, rapid decline in the 2000s and was ultimately bought by Microsoft. But when you look under the hood at what was going on with Nokia, you, you see this relatedness between hardware engineers who made the hardware, the actual phones, and the software engineers who made the apps. And the hardware engineers were the important ones in the, the culture. So again, you look at role in culture, not just their defined role, but what was the role they were actually taking up and they were seen as the important ones. And software engineers were seen as the second, second class citizens, the poor cousins, the little brothers, so not as important. So you have this one on top of the other relationship or relatedness where the agreement between these parts was, we, you know, we don't bother working together. You know, we're, you, you know, we're much more important than you are. And if you looked across the world, because uh, that was a Danish company, if you looked across the world at Apple, what you saw was a completely different relatedness between the hardware and software engineers, which was much more around the hardware engineers being valued for making fabulous hardware and the software engineers being valued for making the apps that made the phones have this wow factor. So rather than seeing one more important than the other, they were equal collaborators was how they defined their role. And the pattern between those parts was that we work together to wow the customers. So the same job but in a different culture, how that role was defined, how that role was taken up, and the agreement between the parts created a very different outcome and product sets that completely took the market by storm and the Apple products that wowed customers. So that for me is sort of the lesson out of that really is to look at what is the role within the culture, not just the role that's described in a job description, but how that role is being perceived and taken up and to really examine that and to reframe those roles uh, for better outcomes for, uh, you know, a higher order purpose, if you like. And, and you're starting here very much with the culture and the, like you're starting at the systemic cultural organizational level i mean obviously particularly with that story but i um 
I always consider in, in the work that we do, when, when is it a cultural, purely a cultural issue? And when can individuals within that culture operate counterculturally, if you like? So in a situation yes. like Nokia, you know, would it have been possible for individual hardware and software engineers to have created pockets where they were doing it differently? I think my view is would be yes, that is possible. It takes an awful lot of effort. And that goes to then, of course, how one changes culture about, you know, where do you find the pockets of, you know, the people who are the, the pioneers who are starting to do it differently? And how do you use that to gradually build up with a tipping point? Because at some point one has one, you know, you're only going to ultimately change culture, you know, by a number of people behaving in a different mm. way. I think in this particular instance that you were suggesting there, I, uh, I would probably also add the dimension of whether the, the more powerful one, which I think you said was the hardware one, whether what language, what, what, what even interaction did they choose to have? Did they feel that they had any needs from the software? people or not and if they did were they able to make requests of them so did did that conversation happen at all and break down or you know with other clients we have what ends up happening which it sounds like you're describing is that each party ends up going well i'm just going to do my bit so i'm going to build my own little empire i'm going to you know duplicate costs by by putting on my resources rather than depending on someone further across the organization. And so I actually think that the, as that, that accountable relationship, the, the asker and the giver, the, the, the making and delivering of promises across the organization, I think is even more difficult because you are then dealing with a, a stronger cultural tendency to not do that. And also you haven't perhaps got the mediator, which can often be the, you know, the more senior player who maybe can make things different. So that would certainly be one of the biggest challenges we see people facing. I think you've uh, nailed it there. And in, in the one-up manager is the one who can start to reframe the roles of the parts because the hardware engineers saw their role as we make the hardware and we're the important ones. The software engineers were framed as, well, you're sort of a side, a side issue uh, you're a little bit the second cousins because the software is, is not the main game. Meanwhile, the marketplace was shifting at a phenomenal speed and uh, the, the company had the technology to compete with that. They had the smartphone technology actually at the time, but they weren't recognising it. So some of the intervention would be with the one-up manager to say, what are you seeing? What's emerging? What is the technology that is going to be in the future? And how do you need to reframe and reconfigure your operating model and redefine the role of the parts and the relatedness of the parts in order to capitalize on the smartphone technology that you actually had? They had that smartphone technology that Apple actually capitalized on fully and brought to the marketplace before they did. Mm. Uh, so you're absolutely right. The intervention and where you intervene is with that one-up manager. That is the integration point for the hardware and the software engineers. But often we try and intervene maybe at a level below rather than at the right level. And uh, that is 
and in that instance, it might even be two levels or three levels up because you're, yeah. Potentially, yes, potentially. It's a really great point. And so then working at the individual level becomes that much more difficult. I, I think I would argue that not impossible. So I, I would argue that there are there are definitely individuals who, if they choose to play those asker and giver roles very consciously, very respectfully, you know, moving outside of that when I'm more important than you, and actually go, you know, having conversations about this is this is what I can offer you, this is what you could offer me. How do we negotiate some kind of a contract about what we're going to work there? I have definitely seen individuals do that, and I and I like to make that point because often listeners you know are sitting in a position where how they're interpreting is what can i do here what what's my but ultimately i agree that this issue i think is 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 a one or two level up manager which therefore does make it more to do with the culture and the recognition as you say that certain parts of the business are given you know become the superior beings in some way and often the strategy requires that to change i mean we've got a client at the moment who you know, a, a really seeking to drive global brands and with all the efficiency and the benefits of having the global brand. And then, of course, as soon as you do that, then you risk sub-optimizing at a local level. From time to time, the global brand solution will not necessarily be the absolute ideal one if you were working you know, wherever in Poland, you might say, well, it would be better to do it something slightly different. So the whole re-education about what, how it is, how we actually want people to occasionally sub-optimize at their level in order to achieve the whole is not an easy thing to do because you've then got to make sure that the compensation and you know, there's a whole range of things happening there. But again, one's back to, are we having those conversations Yes, absolutely. A great example. And what is the role of head office and what is the role of the regions and what are the boundaries between them and what are the agreements between those parts? Because otherwise you get noise. And uh, does everybody understand that? And is the pattern constructive? Because often it can be another eye roll. Here's another product that's being launched by head office and they don't understand my needs locally. Roll of the eyes rather than it's a joined upness in the co-creation of that and in the agreements about how it's going to work locally. It's often a done-to pattern. I don't know if, you, if you've come across that one, but the sense that the regions are being done to by headquarters, uh, which doesn't lead to engagement or people feeling energised. Yeah, that done to. And, and so much, I think, of what you're describing is the air clearing activity. I mean, just even getting it clear about what those, the, the, the big pattern roles are within which then I think individuals can then start contracting with each other so much more effectively. Absolutely. But seeing that pattern, diagnosing that that is the agreement or the pattern between the parts is incredibly freeing because as soon as people hear, oh, you've got this done too pattern, then they go, oh, Yes, of course, that's so resonant for us and we can see it now. And we have head office that's in the role of doer too. And we've got us who are in the role of just receiving uh, these products that are dumped on us. And then you can have a conversation about, well, how do you want to shift your roles? 
how do you um, potentially step into role of co-creators, but from role of, you know, maybe brand leader at head office and, and brand um, implementer locally. So you, you have a joined upness. You can't be successful without both stepping fully into their roles, but it's not a done-to pattern. It's a co-created pattern, uh, which, which um, is much more energizing. Yes. And then accountability in that context. Mm. And I'm thinking that one through. So, so once you're clear about the roles, then it becomes possible to be clear about, so what am I accountable for? What are you holding me to account for? Who is holding me to account? And what can I sign up for? I mean, to what extent can I sign up for certain deliverables in a situation where I didn't design the product in effect in what you're saying, but I will nevertheless sign up for making it work because I trust that we were in some way consulted about how that product was going to be developed in the first place. Yes. So then you can hold head office responsible for being in role of category leader, doing the insights, doing the analysis, creating wow products in consultation with the regions and with consumers. And then you can hold the regions responsible for doing the local tailoring to the extent that it's allowed, for rolling it out productively and constructively and successfully, and for hitting those sales targets. So you you have different roles and different ways of uh, measuring them. So what I'm hearing, which I love, is that really the redefinition of roles in a lateral sense and the clarity about that is a precursor to being able to have really the right conversation about what any individual in that system is then going to be accountable for delivering. Because that's it, it's knowing that what I'm being asked to deliver actually links in with what I feel my role is will make a big difference on that. Yeah, I think that conversation about role right at the beginning and often in projects as well, we're in multiple roles. We might be in role of designer, then we're in role of deliverer, then we're in role of measurer. So there may be multiple roles on that journey to completion. And for the manager, it's clarifying and being crystal clear about those role expectations at different points, because even in the same meeting, you can be in different roles. Even in this conversation, you and I have stepped into multiple roles, role of listener, inquirer, asker, explainer, storyteller. So we're in these multiple roles, but we seldom declare them or even are aware that we're moving from one role to the other absolutely true and i think within that and as we move now let's have a think about moving into roles i i'd like let me play just the role of how would i call this podcast owner for a moment and just very right. quickly move us into one last category uh which is the category of bureaucracy complexity uh we have found or i have found the one of the factors again which has been really valuable for me thinking about what what is the right thing to be holding somebody to account for is that when there is a, a lack of simplicity and or a lack of urgency one is normally dealing with a lack of clarity about timelines and about the so it's not then about the big goals and what are we going to deliver this year but it's about how do you set an expectation or request of somebody, for example, which says, 
here is the here is the here give me a map of what you're going to deliver and let me know by when it's going to happen and then holding people to account against the milestones of those because without that i think people drop into this tremendously complex and lack of prioritization and i'd love to hear just briefly from you because i know we're running out of time now what would be your take on how you help an organization that is becoming less agile and getting bogged down, I guess, in complexity. It reminds me of when I worked at ANZ Bank, where the organization had layers of bureaucracy and complexity, and a diagnostic revealed that, again, there were different parts playing a role in creating this bureaucracy. Head office had stepped into the role of the rule maker, layering in bureaucracy, and the branches had stepped into the role of rule acceptors, accepting all of this bureaucracy. And the pattern or agreement between the parts is we must protect ourselves with lots of bureaucracy and lots of rules. And this pattern had emerged for very good reason because we'd had bad bank loans, Russian loans, that we actually had um, become very uh, conscious of not doing bad things and having these bad loans that burnt us in the past. So the, the parts took up the role. The head office created the bureaucracy and the branches accepted the bureaucracy. And soon the whole organisation was layered with complexity and with rules that were stifling innovation and agility. So again, seeing the pattern, reframing the roles of the head office to uh, be much more the support provider and the branches to be the customer providers, you know, essentially the customer service provider, uh, allow the bank to go on this amazing journey where it actually went from the worst performing bank in the, in the country to the number one performing bank in, on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index uh, with the highest levels of customer satisfaction in the country over a seven-year period. It went through that in remarkable transformation transformation. But again, it was seeing role and pattern between the parts and rewiring and reframing for much better outcomes. Thank you, Siobhan. I think that's where we're going to need to end this. What a fascinating conversation. I um, I love the focus you have on role. And I'm seeing, I'm hoping that the listeners will also see this this balance between, you know, what you've heard me talk about in terms of accountability and how you actually hold to account what it takes to make a promise to be a giver and all the parts of that. And then the asker's role, but then what Siobhan I think is adding in here is the clarity that's needed about the roles and sometimes the redefinition of roles in order to set that conversation up for success. So thank you uh, for coming. And it's nice to finally formalize our, our friendship by actually speaking together on a podcast. It's uh, been delightful to have you here. And I, I do wish you, I know you're doing great work and I'm having great success with your book. I do recommend that people get hold of it, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change. It's a, it's a great way of looking at the things that Siobhan's been talking about. And you've thrown, I think, a, a new light on, on the topics that I've been talking about with the listeners. So thank you for coming. Thank you, Carolyn. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. And thank you for this conversation and not just this conversation, but also for our friendship over the decades and for your enormous contribution to the field of culture change. As I mentioned, your book, Walking the Talk, was groundbreaking 
and incredibly influential in my career. And you just continue to have such an influence. And your new book on accountability is also a very thought-provoking piece. So thank you for this conversation and beyond. So that's it for this week. And a simple exercise to leave you with, to ask yourself as often as you can, what role do I want to play in this interaction? And if I change the role I play, can I change the level of accountability that exists and the likelihood that we will perform together? See you next week.